Welcome to episode 11 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is May 23rd, and in our episode, we're going to discuss tuberculosis in the ancient world. Perhaps not a pandemic, but a disease that had profound effects on human mortality from the ancient world all the way up until the 20th century. Today's episode, we're going to look at infectious disease not as, as a sudden outbreak that turned into a pandemic, like the plague that we've discussed in previous episodes or COVID-19 at the moment, but as disease that is always there or somewhere in the background. Our guest today is Julia Simons. Julia is a graduate student in the Classical Studies program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She's writing her dissertation on tuberculosis, POTS disease, and hunchbacks in the ancient world, and is interested in a much broader range of topics such as human dissection, ancient concepts of anatomy, disability, medical ethics, altered states of mind, and attitudes towards diet. Julia attended our talk a few weeks ago on the story of pandemics and scholarship in popular culture, which is actually part of a six-part series Princeton is currently offering entitled Pandemics in the Past, From Prehistory to Almost the Present. And you can sign up for these talks on the website of Princeton's Medieval Studies program. The talks take place Thursday afternoon, U.S. time or late evening Euro time. Uh, they're all on Zoom, of course, and we highly recommend that you check these talks out. There currently have been two, four others are uh, scheduled for the next four weeks. So hi, Julia. Hi, how are you? Good, good. We start our episodes with the, the regular update on what's happening where each of us is, and we tend to focus on COVID-19. So what's happening with you, Lee? So in Israel, things are pretty much back to normal at this point. My neighborhood had another roof party a few days ago in which people just partied on the roof till like 3 or 4 a.m. There have been several rock concerts. I think the general idea is that people are just sick of COVID-19 and want to get back to normal and they don't really care about social distancing or anything like that anymore. Have you played the old dad card and tried to call the cops on them to shut them down so you can get some sleep? I was thinking about doing that, but then I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not that old, so I still do remember. I mean, myself on the other side. And it's not, it, it looked like a nice party. I mean, probably like 10 people or so. Other than that, infections are, are much slower. I mean, there's somewhere around 10, I guess, a day. Yeah, there was, there's almost no deaths now. So far, Israel had, I think, 270-something deaths. Yeah, so not a lot, and, and that really did stop down almost completely. Yeah, and how are things in Annapolis, Merle? So I mentioned that last weekend, technically, we didn't lift restrictions, but everyone went out last weekend uh, because it was a really nice weekend. It's a really nice weekend right now. It's Memorial Day weekend. And so everyone was out in downtown Annapolis drinking having a good time and obviously not social distancing whatsoever. So the mayor, I think it was the mayor, basically used that as like a gotcha type announcement. He said, look, I didn't crack down purposefully to see what you guys would do. And lo and behold, you didn't wear masks and you didn't social distance. So now we need to keep the measures in place for even longer. Um, I'm not sure if that was what he was trying to do, but that's what he said after the fact. Um, and having driven through downtown a few times, we now go on rides with the kids because they like to go in the car. Uh, that's definitely the case in terms of not enough people wearing masks or keeping their distance. So, so you guys still do the daily walks or did you stop with that? 
Yeah, no, no, no. We still do the daily walks with the kids. We went, well, we did a, a different daily walk today because it was the weekend. So we oh. went to the to the fire station. We stayed again. Yeah. I, I think that's, like, that's the normal one. No, no, the normal one is just around the block. The fire station is the exciting one. Someday when your kid when your kid is two and a half, you'll understand the appeal of the fire station. And your uncle's a firefighter, so you can, you know, he can help you. Uh, that. Yeah, that, that, there's a big story there, but we can keep it for another time. <laughs> <laughs> So, Julia, you're in Philadelphia. What's it like there? Um, it's still reasonably shut down. I've started to notice some of the smaller businesses attempting to open up recently while doing social distancing methods. But most people are out and about in this nice weather that we're getting. Most people have masks on and are doing social distancing. I, I've just been going out every day for a walk with my dog. Other than that... Don't really know. Traffic has definitely increased. (laughs) How is the university doing? I guess the university is closed physically, right? Yes, it's closed physically. Uh, They announced just a few days ago their current plans for the fall semester, which is no plans yet. Um, Just a, (laughs) a list of hypothetical scenarios that we could live under. So we're not sure about that yet. Yeah, I feel like all the universities are just playing, you know, a game of chicken to see who's going to announce what first. Yeah. Uh, and then to like mock each other for their choices. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start off uh, the discussion then, I guess. Could you, and as I joke now, the easiest question, but also the most complicated question, could you just give us a short background on what tuberculosis is? Tuberculosis is primarily a respiratory infection. It's, that's how it most commonly manifests in humans. There are two strains that cause tuberculosis in humans. It's Mycobacterium tuberculosis, it's the human strain, and Mycobacterium tuberculosis bovis, and that's the bovine strain. They both manifest in the body in a similar way, so the person's going to exhibit similar clinical symptoms. But there are different routes of infection. So for the human strain, M. tuberculosis, it's a respiratory route of infection. So you have to inhale infected sputum droplets. So similar to how COVID-19 is spread. For bovine tuberculosis, uh, you can also get it through infected sputum droplets, like if a cow, infected cow breathes on you and you somehow inhale that. Um, but also through infected meat and dairy. So like I said, in the majority of cases, it's going to be a chronic pulmonary uh, disease. So the symptoms that you'll see are the person being very pale and thin. They'll start to waste away, which is why it's been called consumption in English until the discovery of the causative agent, the tubercle bacillus um, by Robert Koch and 1882. Before that, it was a symptomatic name for the disease, right? So the name described the symptom, which was primarily wasting away. So in ancient Greek, the word is phthisis, which means a wasting away. So that's sort of the the most conspicuous symptom. There's also night sweats, a bloody cough, a hoarse voice, and fever. So, so I had a question. So you said there are two different types of tuberculosis. So if I get the bovine type, what would I transmit? Would I transmit the bovine type to someone else or 
Yes, I believe so. I mean, tuberculosis to me is always like an, a 19th century thing, right? That it used to be like seen as a poet's disease or something? Yes, yeah. It, it really saw a peak in the period of industrialization because it's a disease that's associated with poverty, overcrowding, um, poor living conditions, low vitamin D, uh, close contact with animals, uh, and a low immune system. You're much more uh, susceptible to getting TB if you have a low immune system. But they didn't know what caused tuberculosis in that period. It was thought to be hereditary as it was in the ancient period that I study. And that's because you need to have quite a long exposure to someone with TB for you to, to have it, uh, to, you know, to increase your chances of getting it. I've seen the number, um, it would take an adult man eight hours a day for six months being in the room with someone with TB, he'd have a 50% chance of getting TB. So we can see that it's a disease that we're going to see in families and uh, groups that live with one another. And so because of that, I think it's easy to uh, understand how they would assume that it was hereditary instead of contagious. But because it wasn't considered contagious, there wasn't this large stigma put on it yet. Yeah. Um, and it was seen as quite glamorous and uh, thought to increase your genius in a way in that period a lot of very famous people had it and we see it very commonly in romantic literature where the young lovers have this short uh this short exciting uh romance and life that's cut short by tb so so how do the symptoms develop i mean how how long can you live with tb in in a pre-modern context well it depends how strong your immune system is the treatment is antibiotics and chemotherapy so obviously in a pre-modern world, there was no effective treatment. So unless your immune system just sort of overcame the disease, then you were most likely to die from it. It's very, very deadly. And the ancient physicians basically said that it was incurable and that you were going to die from it. Hippocrates says that it's the most, in his epidemics, he says that it was the most devastating and destructive of the diseases and that it had the most amount of uh, the most amount of fatalities although it seems that i mean from what you said earlier it seems that it's a pretty slow disease right i mean both getting infected takes quite some time and i guess wasting away is also like a longish process right yes well you can get it from your parents so obviously we're going to see it in families like i said but The disease is very (laughs) smart, for lack of a better word, in the way that it has evolved with its coexistence with humans or its hosts. So genomic sequencing of M. tuberculosis has uh, estimated that it's about 70,000 years old. So we had it back in Africa and it dispersed throughout the world through humans migrating around the whole world. The thought then is that somewhere between 20 and 30,000 years ago, it developed so that it could be, so that it could survive well in low population density environments. Um, Because diseases that 
thrive in low population densities. Often um, they are chronic. So it's not a good, the disease is not going to be very successful if it kills off all the hosts immediately and they don't have time to pass it along to other people. It can survive in that mechanism in a high density population. But if you have a low density population, then you want to make the person survive for as long as possible so that they have time to pass on the, the infection to someone else. So we can see that tuberculosis actually has very two distinct um, features about it, which make it a very successful disease. It thrives in both low population and high population density environments. Yeah, this reminds me a bit of Lee when we talked a number of episodes ago about how you said you'd prefer to get pneumonic, or sorry, you prefer to get pneumonic plague because at least then you'd have a higher survival rate because pneumonic plague, because it spreads so fast and kills you so quickly, actually isn't that successful of a, of a propagating host or propagating disease, I guess. Yeah, I remember that episode and that sentence. So, so is, is tuberculosis still around today? Definitely. Tuberculosis is a global health crisis at the moment. In 2018, it uh, killed 1.5 million people worldwide. A large number of those were people with HIV AIDS because if you have a, a weaker immune system, you're much more susceptible to dying from tuberculosis. So HIV AIDS weakly, uh, uh, greatly weakens the immune system. It's, uh, in 2018, there was also... 10 million estimated new cases of tuberculosis. It's one of the greatest killers in low-income countries. It's one of the top 10 causes of death in the world, um, and that's particularly in low-income countries. I believe in 2018, which is where the, you know, we have the sort of final stats from the World Health Organization, I believe 95% of tuberculosis deaths were in low-income countries. So 1.5 million people died from it in um, 2018, and that's seen about a 20% decrease since 1990. Which is interesting in itself, right? So COVID-19 so far has killed somewhere around 300,000 people, and the world has stopped. Uh, Tuberculosis Mm -hmm. has killed 1.5 million, so five times as more, and I'm pretty sure many people don't even know that still exists, at least people in the Western world. Exactly. And maybe the reason for that is that, that the people who die from tuberculosis are simply not in, in Western wealthier countries. I think that's exactly the reason. Um, and also, if we compare it to COVID-19, which is, as we've seen from the statistics, primarily um, killing the elderly, tuberculosis will mainly kill the young, children and adolescents. It's one of the greatest killers in the world currently of young women. I, I saw there's a statistic about how many years of life do people who died lose? And I guess for COVID-19, it's not a lot because most of these people are elderly, but for, for tuberculosis, it's probably much, much higher. Yes, definitely. Like I say, it's, it mainly kills children and, and young adults. And this is something that Hippocrates recognized as well. He says that the age group that is most in danger is 18 to 35. And those, that's an age range that's repeated throughout ancient medical treatises. Wait, so he gives the numbers? 
18 and 35, yeah. Between wow. 18 and 35. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I've never thought about this, and maybe this is just a random side note, but those are still categories we use today, right? I mean, if you yeah, look at yeah. charts, I think if you look at our, our podcast, who's listening to it, one of the age ranges is 18 to 35 on the analytics. <laughs> the point about Hippocrates is an interesting, nice segue then to how perhaps tuberculosis affects ancient society. Now, that's obviously a gross term, so maybe it's more useful for us to drill down on, say, Roman society or Greek society, whichever one you know you want to talk about. Well, we can talk about both, um, but I'd probably like to uh, cut that into the three, what we can learn from the three different types of evidence that we can look at. So in my thesis, I'm looking at the textual, the iconographic, and the bioarchaeological evidence for tuberculosis. And these types of evidence are going to tell us slightly different things about how the ancient world was affected with this disease. So maybe we start with the textual and then see if there are follow-up questions and then go into the other ones. Great, yeah. So in terms of the textual evidence, I mainly look at ancient medical treatises in Greek and Latin, and they're very concerned about tuberculosis, or what we should probably call uh, consumption. The word for it is phthisis or phthoe. As I already mentioned, Hippocrates in his epidemics talks about it as being one of the most destructive and devastating diseases, and it gets classified by Hippocrates as a disease that will inevitably kill you and a disease that is inevitably long. They describe all of the symptoms um, with great accuracy. So the main ones being coughing, spitting up blood, fever, chills, and wasting away. So they talk about how it's basically just, you know, flesh hanging from the bones. So the prognosis for tuberculosis in the ancient world is incredibly bad, and the physicians knew this. In fact, they don't even recommend that a physician treat a patient with consumption if they're in the advanced stages of the disease. They say, Hippocrates says, tell him that he's going to die from diarrhea, but don't treat him. So there's this constant thing that we see uh, in the discussions of um, consumption in the ancient world that one of the last signs that you are about to die will be diarrhea. So that's what's happening there. Um, so they don't recommend treatment if you're in the advanced stages. But if you're in the early stages of the disease, then they will treat you. But the treatment is going to be um, regimen, so light exercises or passive exercises, such as being rubbed um, and rocked around. Um, there's a great attention to diet. Uh, the, they use um, gruels and wine and the main medicine actually that they recommend is milk almost everybody recommends that they have quite a lot of milk which is somewhat bad because you can get tuberculosis from consuming infected milk um, but they don't see that correlation one of the things about disease in the ancient world is that it's largely mediated through the physician. We don't have a lot of testimonials from the patients themselves. So we don't get a lot of evidence about what it was really like to live with a disease like this. But it was a very conspicuous disease. 
Um, Hippocrates and other physicians talk about how even a layman can diagnose consumption because it's so obvious. Um, there's a great passage from Hippocrates' Proretics where he talks about how quacks and charlatans shouldn't be given any credit for diagnosing consumption because who wouldn't be able to do that? It is very obvious to everybody who sees it and that's going to come with an ex with some degree of stigma in the ancient world. Are most of the sources you use these treatises as opposed to stories of people or about people who actually had it or treated? Yes. So my, I mainly look at the medical treatises, at least at this point in my research, that's what I'm focusing on because the medical treatises are using an agreed vocabulary. Um, I can't tell for certainty if, you know, when Cassius Dio says that Seneca the Younger was supposedly had consumption, whether that's really the case or not, because there's often not many other symptoms that are given along with it. But when I look at the medical treatises, I can, um, I can look at the conceptualization of the disease, the way that it's defined, its symptoms, etc., etc., And it's problematic, obviously, in trying to diagnose ancient cases of tuberculosis just from literature. And so when I'm looking at the terms for consumption, which are thesis and thoe, I'm also looking for those symptoms, those key symptoms that help indicate that this is most likely tuberculosis and not an agglomeration of other things that someone's calling phthisis. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it hasn't been mashed together, I guess you could say, with a whole list of symptoms. I mean, when we think about plague, right, one of the things that Lee and I have I've done a lot to point out, Lee's now shaking his head for everyone <laughs> out there. That's like your favorite horse. <laughs> it's what we work on, Lee. Uh, but part of the point that we make is that all the, the vocabulary isn't structured exactly like you're saying, right? Yeah. So that it's often hard to tell um, because you don't have a controlled vocabulary. But in an ancient world context, you're doing just that. You're showing that if you look at the controlled vocabulary, that's the way to do it as opposed to less structured ways. It's also a result of how, how common these diseases are, right? So phthisis consumption is, is apparently pretty ubiquitous, if I understand correctly. Yes, I think so. I think it, I think it does show that it is rather ubiquitous, that it is that both phthisis and thoe are being used in philosophy and historical accounts uh, without really any explanation. And so you do see later writers of lexica glossing some of these words for people. We see that in a, a speech of Demosthenes is glossed by a lexicographer in the second century AD called Harpocration. So there is, it was definitely used in the general vernacular but as in terms of the specifics of what it is i'm relying more on the medical the medical discussion so so before we move on to like the, the next source could you just tell us roughly speaking how many case studies do you have so how many case studies of people who actually had tuberculosis i mean obviously a rough estimate should be enough well, most of the medical treatises don't actually have case studies in them it's a general discussion of the theory. 
of what causes tuberculosis and of the hypothetical treatment that you're going to give a patient. There are a few cases, what I would suppose we could call case studies in the in Hippocrates epidemics. Um, but in terms of within the medical literature, there's really very few case studies, so to speak. In terms of it being mentioned in historical literature or you know other things like that, that's the uh, secondary focus of my thesis. So I haven't probably seen all of those instances yet. But you know, some famous people that are supposedly had it, you know, just from offhand comments that we see in 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 ancient writing now for example like i said seneca the younger hadrian antigonus um the orator antisthenes also elias aristides i mean it's the various <laughs> famous people but we don't know whether they actually had it or not we also have figurines that show emaciated hunchbacks that have been interpreted as potential instances of POTS disease. So we do have a good amount of examples, but within the medical literature, it's not phrased as case studies per se. So which, I mean, I actually taught about Antigonus. So which Antigonus had, uh, had tuberculosis? <laughs> which one? I believe it was the first. I'm not uh, 100% yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell that in class. So thank you. This is how uh, facts get made. It's, it's yeah, this is. <laughs> and anyone else listening to this now is going to include this in their lecture, and eventually it'll yeah. make itself into a book, and yeah. some grad student will write a dissertation in 50 years <laughs> proving this entire chain. <laughs> so maybe we can move on to the second group of evidence you talked about that you already kind of mentioned, which were iconography, yeah, iconographic data. Mm -hmm. Sure. So we have a collection of very, very small figurines. A lot of them are bronze. And they depict um, emaciated hunchbacks. So with tuberculosis, the thing is, is that it can affect any organ in the body. So in about 15% of cases, it will affect places other than the lungs. So like the lymph nodes the skeleton, the joints, um, for example. And so in about 3 to 5% of cases, it's going to affect the skeleton. So the infection will spread to the skeleton, and so we can, it will create um, changes on the skeleton that we can then see. Of those cases, about 50% are going to be in the spine. So what happens when the tuberculosis infection spreads to the spine is that it creates large um, lytic lesions on the anterior of the spinal column. So big holes in the front of the spinal column in about one or two vertebrae. They're usually sort of one or two adjacent vertebrae. And so these big holes greatly weaken the spinal column and because of the physics of the body you know we stand upright eventually for a lot of people that's going to result in a very severe angular kyphosis so the spine the spine will collapse and there's going to be a very severe angular kyphosis or that's another word for a, a spinal curvature a forward spinal curvature 
we can see potential evidence of this in these figurines. Obviously, it's very difficult to diagnose a disease from an ancient figurine, um, but when it's a very severe angular kyphosis, then there's more chance that it would be tuberculosis. But these have been traditionally interpreted by various scholars, some of whom were doctors and medical historians, as instances of POTS disease, which is the other name for spinal tuberculosis. And do we know what were these figurines used for? I mean, do we have any idea? So the current thinking is various theories, but the hunchback in general in the ancient world is a little bit of a magical figure. So one of the theories is that these little figurines are used as apotropaic devices, so to ward off evil, to ward off the potentiality of getting a disease or becoming a hunchback. Um, and the other theory, well, there are various theories, but another strong theory is that they are objects for elite viewers because they are often very high quality, made from quite high quality materials like bronze or ivory. So the idea is that they're objects for high status elites to look at to confirm their own biological normalcy and I suppose hence um, biological superiority. Okay, so maybe we can move into your third bucket of uh, sources, which is the uh, ancient DNA approach. When we look to the bioarchaeological evidence, we have strong bioarchaeological evidence from Italy as early as the first half of the fourth millennia. So, for example, there are three cases of spinal tuberculosis within a few hundred years of one another. Now, dating is obviously problematic. Um, within a five-kilometer radius of one another. So that's quite strong evidence for the spread and um, existence of tuberculosis in the ancient Mediterranean. And it's believed that uh, the Neolithic period, where we see quite a few bioarchaeological cases, not only in the Mediterranean, but also across Europe, that that's the period when we start to see an increase in the prevalence of tuberculosis because of the domestication of, of animals. So we're living, with, we're living closely with animals and also because of urbanization and more people living in higher density communities and settlements with one another. So that's pretty much going to be the main, uh, the main risk factor in many ways. So as I said, we have strong evidence since the Neolithic period. We have a few cases in the classical period. And then what we really see a lot of is cases in the Roman imperial period. So these are cases that have been associated by some scholars with the spread of the Roman Empire, so the military trade and migration. But it's unsure to what extent that really would be the case because in a lot of these communities, tuberculosis would probably already have existed. But within the Roman imperial examples, we see a lot of cases from the Roman suburbs in areas associated with high agricultural production, slave farming, um, and 
poor living conditions, when we compare the skeletal remains of people with tuberculosis that we have with the other remains in those skeletal populations, we often see that they had poor access to nutrition, bad living conditions, they engaged in strenuous work. And also we can tell from a lot of the cases of spinal tuberculosis that even though the person had a disability, so a very severe hump and sometimes paralysis, we can tell from the skeleton that they continue to engage in other types of work. So we see com compensatory wear and tear on the bones. So it seems like they did engage in other types of work. But sadly, some of the cases are, for example, in unnamed graves that are uncovered. So not indicating a high social status. So, so that kind of leads up to the, another question that I, that I had. Can we somehow characterize the people who had or, or the groups that had a higher chance of getting tuberculosis in the ancient world? So things such as class, I mean, you seem to imply that the poor people would have more tuberculosis, but what about gender or ethnicity? And what kind of sources are you using for each of those estimates? For in the ancient world, well, we can see from the from the literary evidence, we're told that it's mainly young people who are affected and um, mainly young women. A lot of people affected are young women and there's an entirely, almost an entirely different um, hypothesis for how consumption works when it's dealing with a woman. It's related to the, to the menstrual cycle and to parturition. So women are, have a large risk factor. Um, and it's traditionally associated uh, with being poor and living in a poor environment. So like I said, close association with animals, poor ventilation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to spread pretty easily, I would imagine, in the Roman world. They don't have sanitation. <laughs> they don't have... Um, any means to disinfect anything. You're also going to see, for example, it as a comorbidity in certain occupations. So, for example, like I've said, how it, it is often a comorbidity with HIV AIDS, we'll also see it with people who work in mines or people who work with cutting or polishing stone or anything like that. It's got a high morbidity with silicosis, which is a respiratory issue caused by the inhalation of silica dust. It, um, silicosis actually used to be referred to as miner's physis. And Hippocrates also details the issues that people who work with stone would have, um, the, the issues that they had with breathing as for, for the examples from the famous people that I that I said before, we can see that it's it, it also does affect every class. Of the bioarchaeological examples, they're mainly youngish, you know, young people earlier than about thirty. But we do also have cases of people into their older age as well who obviously survived the disease. And, and what about the iconographic sources? Do they all represent young women, or do they represent other? genders and, and, and ages? Of the people with hunchbacks, it's primarily men. Sometimes they're depicted with very large phalluses. Sometimes they're depicted with very large lips and a little snub nose. 
Um, so some people have interpreted that to be sort of stereotypical depictions of African people. So the figurines are the most problematic, probably, um, of the sources to interpret because there's just so much social fuzz that comes with it. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, you're missing probably a large part of the social context of seeing a figurine sitting on someone's desk, for example, or something like that. That's not Abs- Absolutely. The only textual evidence that we have for the figurines comes from, I think it's Plutarch, who says he's talking about how we as people, we really enjoy the imitation of something, but not necessarily the thing itself. So he says, why do we look at consumptives which, with such disgust, but we enjoy looking at um, figurines of them? Yeah. It's a nice little anecdote. Yeah, but we know from, well, we know that populations who've had the longest contact with the disease have the best host resistance. So migrants coming into an urbanized settlement like Rome would be at a higher susceptibility than people who had been raised in Rome and had some kind of genetic immunity from being there, um, from being in that population that had gained genetic immunity over time. Yeah, which is always then going to be a bigger problem on someone like Rome or later in Constantinople or any big city, right? Because they're constantly basically having migrants coming in to replace the population that's essentially dying uh, from various diseases. Yes, exactly. And also, you know, any period of great uh, stress on your immune system can make you more susceptible to getting tuberculosis. So you can imagine long periods of travel where you don't have access to food, poor ventilation. Malnutrition is a huge factor. You can imagine um, ancient cities that were being um, besieged would have been um, greatly, at, those people would have been greatly at risk for getting tuberculosis. And, sh- and people within the the slave populations as well, like the you know the captives from from wars and things like this would have been greatly at risk. So, would you say that there are, or did you find any changes in tuberculosis or how tuberculosis is conceived of over time? So, moving from antiquity to late antiquity to the Middle Ages, or is it all kind of the same? Well, until the discovery of the causative agent, like I said, the tubercle bacillus in, I think it's 1882, really the thinking of the mechanisms of the disease and the effective methods of treatment were influenced by Hippocrates and Galen. For example, the ancient physicians very much recommend that you go and get fresh air, you go and be in a drier climate, Uh, Some recommend that you go on a boat trip to Alexandria because it's a drier climate and also because the sea air is going to help dissolve the ulcers in your lungs. Um, And also some people say that it's the rocking back and forth on the ship that's going to be beneficial to you. So the idea of climate therapy is really the most long-standing Uh, conception of tuberculosis. That was the way that we treated tuberculosis in the 18th 
and 19th centuries was by setting them out into the into even incredibly cold climates at the sanatoria that were created they'd set them out on the front porches and they'd be bundled up in blankets in the middle of winter the idea was that it had to be in uh, clean fresh air and also the idea that it was hereditary definitely um maintained throughout history i know in the medieval period that it was very common and a big problem during the crusades and i know that also scrofula which is one of uh, the other symptoms of tuberculosis was considered to be uh, able to be cured by the touch of a king so it became known as the king's evil and obviously uh, that's not a great way to curb the spread the actual perhaps medical reason behind the king's touch is that when you actually touch someone they also usually gave you some slightly better food or some money to buy some slightly better food so actually your health would pick up a bit and so that's why perhaps there's a medical relationship there ah okay that makes sense yes yeah i haven't looked at the periods outside of the classical and the sort of modern so you mentioned galen does does he change anything what we see in the uh, first and second century medical authors, Galen is the second century AD, uh, is more of a, an uh, increased specificity, I suppose, at the classification of consumption. So as I mentioned before, the terms for consumption are phthisis and thoe. They're both derivatives of the Greek phinane, which means to waste away. In the earlier literature, they seem to be fairly... Um, synonymous terms but later on by the time by the first century AD we can see a distinction where thoe becomes almost a subspecies of phthisis so thoe is specifically when the lungs become ulcerated because of the amount of pus that is passing through the lungs and that you're bringing back up one of the main signs of consumption in the ancient world was expectorating um, pus and blood. Um, so if you brought up a lot of purulent matter, <laughs> as they would say, uh, then you had thoe. So sputum diagnosis, sputum analysis and diagnosis was one of the principal methods in looking at consumption and there was a belief that if you threw the the patient's spit upon the coals that it would make a very disgusting sort of burnt fat smell and that meant that they had phthisis so if you wanted to test you threw their spit on the coals because it, it talks a lot about how they have disgusting sputum it's stinky it's foul tasting and the people who have consumption, their rooms that they lie in start to smell strange. So this is, these are Galen's contributions? Yes, Galen, Galen talks about the, uh, the specifications, and those are also talked about in Arataeus of Cappadocia, and also in the second century. And the physician we call Anonymous Parasinus in the first century AD, where they seem to have a greater... Yeah, a greater specification between the two. However, we still see them kind of used synonymously. 
And in fact, I believe it's Arateus of Cappadocia who says, you know what, it doesn't really matter if you can't distinguish, if you get someone who has phthoe and you think that they have phthisis because the most important thing is not the sputum test, it's your sight. You have to trust your sight more than any other of your senses. It's a little bit different than some of the other physicians, but he says that if it looks like a consumptive, he's wasted away and he's coughing and spilling up blood, then it is a consumptive. I wonder in your work so far, and this touches on kind of how we opened the segment, is there some kind of hierarchy of diseases um, that people think about, right? I mean, we touched upon how we've reacted particular ways to COVID-19 as opposed to tuberculosis today. Um, likewise, we could say scholarship on plague is voluminous versus scholarship on, say, malaria or even tuberculosis doesn't perhaps is, is, is less significant because it's always there, as it were. So I'm wondering how you kind of think about that question in terms of disease hierarchy. Well, within classical studies, there's definitely been an interest in the plagues, the Athenian plague, um, for example. And I, I think this is because it was so devastating and destructive. And we have a fantastic account of it from Thucydides that details not only the physical destruction, but the social destruction of the disease and how such a devastating epidemic can really sort of almost dissolve the social fabric and what are the social mores um, and can test who should be, you know, kind to other people and things like that because it's stated that the people who went and took care of the people with the plague were the ones who then got sick. Tuberculosis doesn't have that epidemic nature about it for the most part. So we definitely don't see as much interest in it in the ancient world. I think a large amount of the reason why this is the case is because it's not associated with contagion. Some ancient physicians thought that, for example, the plague was contagious and that you breathed in the corrupted breath from somebody else and that got you sick. And so there was obviously a notion of infection. And if you could get infected from other people, then you're obviously more afraid of them. What we saw once the tubercle bacillus was discovered and people knew that tuberculosis was contagious was them started to be treated as sort of pariahs in society. You know, don't go near them because you'll get tuberculosis from them. So thankfully, we don't have that in the ancient world. I say sort of thankfully because on the one hand, it's a shame that they didn't understand the mechanism of transmission. They thought it was largely hereditary or caused by other things. Uh, but it also didn't mean that we had sort of, you know, quarantine for these people and, and things like that. In terms of the hierarchy of diseases in scholarship in the ancient world, I think, like I said, the plague is garners a lot of interest the sacred disease which we traditionally interpret to be epilepsy gets a lot of interest because it's uh, sort of often represented as a somewhat pivotal moment for the 
the nature of medicine and the study of medicine moving from a divine causation to a natural causation, right? The refutation that epilepsy is a divine disease when apparently it's not, it's caused by problems with phlegm in the brain. Uh, and then also in scholarship, we see, I mean, it's obviously a little bit biased just on what I personally have looked at, but we've seen a lot of interest in issues with women as well. Like, for example, the wandering womb is always very interesting to people. So if you were to take an a intro to medicine course in the ancient world, those are the kind of things you'd definitely see. So how do you understand that? I mean, why isn't tuberculosis bigger? I think the study of tuberculosis is difficult. I think looking at the textual evidence is problematic, obviously, because there are issues with terminology and how we can really diagnose diseases in the ancient world. For some reason, it hasn't really garnered that much attention. I think another one of the uh, skepticisms that you can always have when looking at medicine in the ancient world is, well, how do we really know that this is the disease that you're talking about? And so there's much more, I would say, need to do a big project on tuberculosis in the ancient Mediterranean in recent years because there's been so many bioarchaeological cases published that prove that tuberculosis did exist in the ancient world and it has been around for a very long time. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it. Once the genetics evidence is there, I think it's then up to historians and classicists and and people trained to think about, to make a, a more complicated idea, simple culture, to put it in its context and to actually ask uh, questions about what what people at the time thought about those diseases rather than just kind of count up what's there. So you mentioned that geneticists were publishing data on essentially corpses with tuberculosis. I mean, is, is it geneticists or? So it's a multi, it's very much a multidisciplinary field, the study of tuberculosis. You have historians and art historians. And then also when it comes to the bioarchaeological material, you have people who are like paleopathologists who are looking at the gross morphology of the skeleton, doing differential diagnosis on the skeletal lesions, trying to determine if that's tuberculosis or not. You also have the possibility of doing other kinds of molecular analysis. So ideally we can do a DNA analysis or ancient DNA analysis. And there have been positive identifications of tuberculosis in ancient skeletons as far back as, I think it's 8,000 years ago Mm -hmm. in an ancient settlement off Israel. Uh, Are those teams who are publishing that, do they have historians on them as part of the group of people? Maybe not the 8,000-year-old ones because that would be archaeologists, but maybe the Roman context, for example. Sometimes, yes. So there are collaborations, interdisciplinary collaborations, as opposed to each of these groups kind of like working within a different silo and publishing to their own people. Yes, I mean, it's a bit of a mix. It's definitely a little bit of a mix. And then you have also microbiologists who are doing things like genomic sequencing to try to determine how old the actual disease is and things like that. So obviously, all of these people have different expertise 
So like I said, it's very much a multidisciplinary approach to tuberculosis. And what I look at is the, the textual, um, the textual iconographic and the bioarchaeological data. So I, I can't do anything with the molecular analysis. Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah. the, that's the problem all of us have is you can be <laughs> yeah. trained in in so many things. So you know you have the training to read the the bioarchaeology and to you know to do stuff as well. Um, but you certainly probably you know take another lifetime to be trained again to do the actual genetics. Definitely, yeah. But it is an, an, a fascinating time to work on this, right? I mean, the, the amount of sources we currently have is actually growing as opposed to many other questions that we might be interested in for the ancient world. Yeah, it's a great time to be working on this. It's not a thesis that I would have been able to do a few decades ago because of the nature of the sources that I'm dealing with. And also, I think within classical studies that there's been a growing interest in medicine in general. And I think considering what the world is going through at the moment, that trend will continue, if yeah. not increase. I know there's definitely been a lot of calls for people to, you know, send me some passages about the plague. My students want to read it, that kind of thing. I didn't think uh, two years ago when I decided on this thesis that it would be, that people would be as interested in it as they probably will be now. It just goes to show that you pick your topic and that's about all you can do when you don't know what actually the outcomes are going to be and where, where the field, you know, where the field's going to go. I know a couple of notorious cases of people working on, you know, the history of capitalism essentially in 2005, 2006, and then all of a sudden they're the hot commodity because the 2008 recession happens and everyone yeah. wants to know about why capitalism is, is failing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I guess we can uh, start to, to wrap things up here. Uh, so first, uh, as usual, uh, if you've been enjoying the show, please do take a few moments to rate and review us. So I, I guess here we can thank Julia for her time and expertise. It, it, I've learned a lot. I'm sure, Merle, you have as well. And I, I hope your, our listeners uh, would join us in, in that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. And we'll, we'll probably be in touch. You at some, some conference once we can start moving around a bit more. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. So, Lee. When you learned about if you can cast your mind back, you know, X number of years to your intro courses or when you're teaching now, do you incorporate tuberculosis or any other endemic disease into your teaching or your education? I actually do not remember learning about health. My different courses as an undergrad, as a grad student, it was always very clear that health in the pre-modern times was bad and people were dying from various diseases and infectious diseases. Life expectancy, I mean, was short, very short. The, the numbers, the, the ballpark numbers are 20 to 25 or 20 to 30. I mean, obviously problematic, but, but that, that was the broad impression. But we never actually zoomed in to discuss one or more of these diseases. 
I would say that, that my sense, at least, is that history or the, the social, political, cultural history I, I was trained is kind of in one silo and people working on health issues or health questions are in a different silo and we don't really talk to each other. Yeah, I think it brings up a interesting point, which diseases you do talk about, right? Which diseases you do talk about are the ones that supposedly changed history, right? I mean, killing millions of people a year as tuberculosis still does, doesn't change very much for our daily lives. And so we don't think about it. And probably you could say the same thing in Roman history as well. Yeah, I think Julia had a couple of points there when we asked her at the end, so which diseases are, are big? What, what's, what, what is the hierarchy of disease in, in scholarship, let's say? And she mentioned the plague of Athens. I mean, on one hand, this happens at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, but doesn't really affect the result of the war. But on the other hand, it's written very well, as Julia mentioned by Thucydides. And his account of that plague kind of makes it much bigger for us, for modern scholars today. So scholars would refer to that plague specifically, which is not bubonic plague, but it's still called the Plague of Athens. We learned about it from, from a literary perspective as opposed to a health perspective. Yeah, I think it goes to the question of what is a pandemic, right? I mean, there are technical definitions of that. Yes, so, so that plague specifically is, and as far as I remember, happens only in Athens. I mean, that, that, that's the story, and it doesn't affect the rest of the Greek world, for example. Or they're in the middle of a war, and it really affects Athens. Other diseases, such as our favorite Justinianic plague, though, do seem to get more attention because they, they affect history, more broadly speaking. And maybe that makes it easier for us to describe them as pandemics. I mean, I think it makes it easier for us to sit up and pay attention and notice and include it in general surveys of pre-modern history, right? I mean, it's actually quite hard. How would you how would you tell a history of tuberculosis, right? I mean, one of the things Julia's good points was until we actually knew what the bacillus was, you couldn't treat it, you couldn't do that much. Um, how you approach it might be different. But how could you tell a history, as it were, that changes how people live their daily lives? I'm not sure you could. And I think that based on the sources she has or the sources she mentioned for tuberculosis, I think it's very difficult to portray a some change over time, some different effect of tuberculosis. I mean, in a sense, it becomes, again, permanent thing that, that's happening in the background, but it's, it's, it's not as, as concrete, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Let's talk about small children and pandemics, or specifically this pandemic, so COVID-19. So both of us are fathers, young fathers, I guess. Let's talk about how, how it is to raise a child in, in this time and place. So first of all, I like that you are insistent on describing yourself as young for this entire podcast. You obviously are pushing that point. <laughs> I'm not sure demographically or statistically you're young fatherly, but we can leave that aside for now. When I met my wife, she, she always said that I... I referred to myself as being old. And I think up until 30, I referred to myself as being very old. And then 
I'm kind of like moving the other way now. And so now I'm getting younger. Well, it's because you have a child. So now you're young again. This is oh. what my, my dad tells me. He says, when you have kids, it's when you become young again. Well, I can definitely say that I am doing things that I would, would not have done otherwise. Baby shark being one of them. <laughs> I thought you were going to say changing diapers, but baby shark, surely baby shark. I mean, I, I will say that I just recently discovered that Baby Shark is the most watched video on YouTube. I think like 6 billion people watched it, which is almost the world's population, which I'm not sure what it tells us about our society and culture. Well, I, I know I've watched it about 30 times, so it's not quite the world's population. But in any case, to get back to your question, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting point. I, you know, I, I hope, 10 years down the line, when we look back on this, I'll think about this from a perspective of I got to spend more time with my children at a young age. Right? I mean, yeah. I think that's something that was, that was not expected. Yeah, your children were in daycare when this all started. Yeah, I mean, I saw them in the morning and in the evening, but in between I was doing work. Now, part of that is because I think, personally, we think, along with my wife, that sending kids to a socialized environment is important for their development. But it certainly means that we get to spend a lot more time than we thought possible uh, with them. So that's, you know, looking down the road, I'm sure probably you know, if I get to actual old age, like, I will think positively on these, on these times. I mean, on my side, it's, it's interesting though, right? So my daughter was born kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. So in February, so, so just before it became huge. Actually, our... Our op-ed came out the day she was born, which is kind of like funny, but yeah. You can, always mark, her, you can always mark her birthday with the op-ed and show it to her for her first birthday. <laughs> Look what daddy did. I'm not sure she would be impressed. But, but since then, well, like three and a half months have passed. Our norm is to spend our entire days with her. We've had no help so far. We couldn't really bring in anyone to babysit her so far. We've just we've just raised her in a way that's probably very different from the way we would if we live our normal pre-COVID nineteen lives, right? I, I mean, I'm, neither of us is going to work. We both work from home, so we spend all day in home at home with our daughter, and it's not a big apartment here. <laughs> it's like a one bedroom. Well, that's a separate issue altogether. But as I said, I hope you maybe look back on it with fond memories. I mean, the first three months, I don't remember the first three months of my kids' lives. So those are the three months you tend to black out. I don't remember what I had yesterday. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember when days are rainy or not. Personally, I'm pretty sure I will have a lot of stories about, I mean, when she, my daughter, when she grows up, she'll definitely know that she was born in the middle of a pandemic and what it meant for her parents and you're already good at the uh, the guilt, Lee. I'm very impressed. The guilt and constructing narratives, Merle. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you you have your own stories, right? I mean, we started collaborating when you had your small kids. And you've been telling a story. I, I heard this story at least like half a dozen times of how you both raised your twins and wrote articles late at night. So. <laughs> and isn't it a wonderful story? Okay, so on this rather optimistic note, I guess we can conclude our episode. 
Now Merle will probably go through his regular line, but I have to say that staying indoors is no longer obligatory here. And most people, at least based on what I see on the streets, are not doing that. So stay indoors only if you have to stay indoors. So until next time, stay safe, stay indoors, or stay safe outdoors. And we'll speak to you soon.